everyone. Welcome to Risk Roundup. Usually when nations, its government, industries, organizations, academia, and individuals are presented with a new innovation, new technology, or new way of doing things, a number of factors influence their decision-making process. For example, whether they will use the technology or process, that is the first question you know that they will think about. How will they use it? When they will use it? In addition, whether using a particular technology or process would enhance their job performance or it would decrease cost, increase profits, and so on. These are just some of the variables that would come in play when making a decision about any new way of doing things. Now, when we evaluate artificial intelligence, in short, referred to as AI, from the perspective of whether these extraordinary innovation will be accepted by nations, its government, industries, organizations, and academia, in short, referred to as NGIOA, it brings forth very complex security risks that will likely be very difficult to manage for any nation. The potential of AI realized will likely depend on how it is understood and received by NGIOAI, that means nations, its government, industries, organizations, academia, and individuals, its social and political impact, understanding of the benefits of risk, benefits and risk, and willingness on part of NGIOAI to accept the fundamental changes broadened by the AI. In short, the potential of AI will be heavily influenced by individual human choice and opinion. Generally, an individual human being, a common man across nations, is largely taken for granted when it comes to technology trend or acceptance. However, when it comes to AI, nations should not make any mistake of taking the common man, an individual component of a nation, for granted. While some studies are underway to understand the effect of artificial intelligence on society, including efforts to understand its effect on economy, war, crime, jobs, and so on, we still have to understand how will we reshape human roles, responsibilities, purpose, and plan. To discuss this further, I'm delighted to welcome David Moshera from Leading Edge Forum. Welcome, David. We're delighted to have you on Risk Roundup. Great to be here. Thanks. Great, David. So machine intelligence or artificial intelligence will be one of the defining themes of the digital global age. However, the challenge for we, the humans, is to ensure that we make good use of the opportunities it brings to us as we are all in this together. But at present, we, the humans, have barely begun to consider these ramifications, good or bad. So are humans aware of the impact AI or machine intelligence could have on their very survival? It's, it's a very good question. And I think you know, many people are certainly aware of the potential for AI because uh, people have been seeing this for a long time. But in some ways, that very time has been part of the problem that people have talked about artificial intelligence since the 1960s. And the field actually, over the decades, has not lived up to what a lot of people expected. So people have heard these things before, but now, at least in our work and what we see going on, we think this time it really is for real, for reasons that we can get into. And so people have to sort of accept and, and understand that this time some of these changes are actually going to 
happen. Uh, but even then, the, the timetables are still unclear. So it's a lot to ask society at large to fully understand what's going on because even the participants are unsure about the timing of many of the things that are underway now. Yes, yes. No, you are right about that. Now, artificial is non-human or machine intelligence describes computer systems that perform tasks traditionally requiring human intelligence and perception. But now, in the wake of recent technological advances in computer vision, speech recognition, and robotics, there's a growing concern that artificial intelligence technologies may permanently displace human workers, robotize warfare, and make Mars surveillance techniques much, much easier to develop and deploy. Where are we going? Yeah. I, I... One way we like to look at this is that you know intelligence is is wonderful. It's marvelous. It's it's mysterious, but it isn't magic. That the things that the human brain does can be engineered to be done by machines. So that just about anything that a human can do, whether it's speak or listen or write or communicate or re you know reason, machines are now being trained to do these things. And they're all at various stages of development, but the field of artificial intelligence is basically trying to replicate all of the many forms of, of human intelligence. Sometimes they will match them. Sometimes they'll very much exceed them. Uh, and in some ways we've seen this before. You know, even you know, many animals can exceed human capabilities in all kinds of ways. You know, sight, sight. smell, navigation, all of these areas. And now machines are starting to be able to do it in, in many areas as well. So it's, it's a very different landscape of, of intelligence overall. And human intelligence now has to be seen as, as really one component of, of what's being uh, you know, in play in terms of societal and challenges. Yes, no, you made a really good point, David. That's a really good analysis. Now, the use of AI is not new. We have been using it for many, many years in some basic form. Now, where do you see AI making the impact? And when do you see it becoming a cause of concern to humans? Because from what I know, right now, we are only at the stage of artificial narrow intelligence. We still have to you know, reach a stage where the machine intelligence is on par with the intelligence that humans have. And then, you know, we will talk, uh, we will reach the state of uh, intelligence, which will be superior than humans. So what are your observations on the development that is going on and where are we in that? Yeah, I think of all the issues in machine intelligence, artificial intelligence, whatever you want to call it, timing is by far the most difficult issue because people in the field can see the progress that will be made in all of the areas that I mentioned earlier and, and many more, but the timing is 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 tougher. Uh, but as you say, you know, people have been using various forms of artificial intelligence for, for many years. But the big change out there is that historically that has come mostly from large government organizations or large companies building very specialized systems to you know, route traffic or to uh, manage air air flights or to land planes and, and things that were sort of done within a company or industry setting. But what's happening now is that artificial intelligence is essentially being consumerized. It's becoming part of the cloud. It's becoming a service to the public so that the leaders are, are no longer giant firms like Exxon or you know, British Airways. It's now you know, companies like Google and Microsoft and, and Facebook who are designing systems to support billions of people. 
not designed to support the needs of a particular firm. So this consumerization of, of artificial intelligence, we think is one of the most important changes out there and really does start to change and, and really increase the potential impact. That is a very good point, David, that the democratization of artificial intelligence has already begun because we have been using ANI, artificial narrow intelligence, from cars to phones to thermostats, emails and games like checkers and, checkers and chess. We have been using the ANI. But now we are reaching a stage where pretty much every single human being will be able to benefit from the you know, advances in artificial intelligence. And it's a whole new world because probably nations and governments don't know how to deal with that. Just like they don't know how to deal with the encryption. They don't they won't know how to deal with the artificial intelligence, you know, that is getting democratized, you know, all across nations. So that's very fascinating advances happening there. Now, the field of machine learning continues to advance at a tremendous pace. It is reported that machines can now achieve near human abilities at many cognitive tasks from recognizing images to translating between languages and driving cars. Where are we now in terms of understanding where this is all leading and ensure that research in machine intelligence continues to benefit humanity and, you know, does not go on the path which, you know, would probably cause extinction of humanity? Yeah, uh, I, th I think the important thing for people to understand is why, why is it so different right now? Why is machine intelligence, artificial intelligence, why is it taking off? And we think it's because the technology community has really cracked the code of, of how to do this. And there are really three pieces that are important. The first is that there is just data available to work with that has never been available before. And to give you an example of that, you know, Facebook will probably be the leader in facial recognition technologies, the ability to recognize you or me or anyone in a picture. Well, why is that? It's because they have the faces in their database. And so they can feed a hundred or a thousand pictures of you into a system. And that allows the system to build traits that allows it to recognize you as you. So the data available in these consumer markets is enormous. The same reason that that Google is so good at translating is that it has books that is, is in you know the same book in 40 different languages and it can see how words and sentences are translated. So the data is there. And that's the first one. The second piece that's really important is the computer science field has made major progress in the sort of what's called the deep learning software. And we probably won't get into that, but it's a new way of programming and, and going about this that allows machines to teach themselves, particularly with the latest really fast computers. So the computer science part of this is also extremely important. And then the third piece is a business piece. And that is that every little capability, speech translation, facial recognition, you know, recognizing songs that are playing in the air, every one of those things is worth a tremendous amount of money. So companies are being formed to address every particular artificial intelligence dimension, 
believing that there'll be hundreds of millions or even billions of dollars in value as those services are provided across the planet. So there's this tremendous surge of new companies, hundreds, maybe even thousands today in Silicon Valley and, and elsewhere. And so there's an economic push in artificial intelligence that really has never been there before. And it's really those three things that are why we believe the whole thing is sort of reaching a, a tipping point right now. Yeah, that is, that is very, very true, David. Now, uh, the idea of intelligence existing in some form that is not human seems to have a deep hole in the human side. Now, the thought of machine intelligence or artificial intelligence exceeding human intelligence is like, you know, people are not even beginning to believe that or it's like a bad dream to them. What will happen to human psychology when singularity happens, when we reach the highest stage? Yeah. It's, a, it's, you know, from a cultural point of view, it's probably the, the biggest question that humans, most societies around the world, always have seen ourselves as special and, you know, have almost been like the gods with our reason and our thinking and our capabilities. Uh, but now we're starting to see that our intelligence is not necessarily so magical or special that it can, in fact, be duplicated not just by machines, but as I said earlier, but also by, you know, the field of animal intelligence is really opening up tremendously and people seeing the rich capabilities that animals have in so many areas that are actually like ours uh, and, and sometimes better. And so human, the human psyche has to see a world where we're actually going to be surrounded by very high forms of intelligence. And, and that's a very different world than most of our cultures and our literature, our philosophy, our religions have grown up you know, sort of teaching to us. So uh, I think the psychological impact will be very significant when we get to that stage. But you know, we're still not at that stage yet. So most people really haven't, you know, most people are still skeptical and don't really see this coming. And, and that's why this is such an interesting period. Right, right. No, that is very true. This is such a fascinating time. So much changes. Uh, the technology is bringing, you know, the it's uh, it's just mind-boggling to you know probably many because the pace of change is so rapid that I humans are probably not used to coping up with this many changes happening in such a short period of time. Now there is a growing concern that nations are not doing enough to prepare for the rise of artificial general intelligence, which we should be reaching probably in the next few years, according to some estimates. Mm. Uh, what steps are taken across nations to prepare for AGI and what impact we will likely see on human society? Do you have any data on that? Because I could not find anything about, you know, what nations, individual nations are doing to prepare their industries, their government, their, you know, organizations, their education system, academia, or their, you know, citizens. I yeah. could not find any data about that. Yeah, I'm not sure about data, but there's clearly a, a lot going on. and. When I look at that issue, I see it mostly in terms of competitiveness. That, you know, from a global point of view, the technology industry has been dominated by American firms, Silicon Valley firms, for forever, basically, for the last 50 years. Uh, and, you know, Silicon Valley is in a very strong position in, in machine intelligence as well. But if you go to China today, or India, or the advanced centers in Europe and, and elsewhere, they do not want to be dependent on Silicon Valley for machine intelligence, artificial intelligence software, because 
they see that this technology is too important to not be a, a player there. Uh, this is of immense importance, certainly in China today, uh, that is very committed to having its own artificial intelligence industry. In fact, they would like to win that competition with America. So from, a, from the big picture economics point of view, India, China, Europe, America, elsewhere, they're competing to who's going to be the best in this. For the other countries that are less technologically advanced, I would say, by and large, this is not high on the agenda with, with one exception. Many of those countries are quite poor. Uh, and many of the real benefits of machine intelligence, in theory, could help less developed countries get the benefits of these technologies. The, the one that, example that's always used is medicine. The ability to deliver intelligent diagnoses and information and skills over the internet in various parts of the world that would never, are not gonna have their own huge medical communities for the foreseeable future. There are many tremendous potential gains to the developing world there. So I think it sort of splits. The, Developed world sees this in competitive terms, and the less developed world sees it. Hey, what can we use? How are we going to use this stuff? And and they're less concerned about the economic impacts, which you know, will won't affect them as probably as much as other places. No, you're you're right about it. The develop development part that you to just mentioned about you know China, India, and Europe and UK, and they are all you know very heavily investing into this, and they all want to come up with their own technologies. That that is there, but there is no transparency about you know what kind of technology they are developing and where they are, because I think this field is so very critical that you know if we don't know what kind of developments are happening across nations that could be very detrimental to any nation's security because we don't know what they are you know planning to do with that ai so i, I that is uh, most definitely a concern to me and I, I think it should be a concern to all nations because that should you know we should know what kind of developments are happening and what we should be preparing for that transparency needs to be there but i don't see it there now ai has the potential to radically transform in a positive way the degree to which we can utilize and process data and information that in ways that we the humans simply cannot mm. in addition simple everyday actions such as interacting with the internet of things which is you know very rapidly growing that have become overly complex because of the interfaces like uh, setting a thermostat and uh, so on can be radically simplified using natural language processing and i've been trying to uh, have a dialogue with industry experts on natural language processing but because of the confidentiality of the developments happening right now they are not in a position to share their thoughts but i think what is your observation about this and uh, i mean we know that this this development should be very welcoming to everyone but we still see a broad fear about what is to come so and that probably is because of the ignorance because we don't know what is coming so what are your thoughts on that yeah, it's, a, it's a really interesting area i mean the, the people in the artificial intelligence field are really excited about their challenges and the you know the technical possibilities so the field is trying to build things that work and that add value and that uh, can be used by people. So they're very focused on that. 
And then the sort of implication side obviously gets much less attention, as you say, but there are some signs of groups who are thinking about these. The, the two that, that I think are best known is the, there's a professor, a, a Swedish professor, who actually now teaches at Oxford in the UK. Uh, his name is Nick Bostrom, and he has been sort of building various institutions to look at the potential ways that this technology could be used to to the benefit of humans more than the, the, the downsides. And, and so he's trying to put in place a community, some practices, some philosophers, some thinkers, and just a whole system of what of people to think about the impact of, of artificial intelligence over time. So that's a quite interesting area. And the other one is uh, Elon Musk, who you know people may know, the uh, Tesla cars and SpaceX, and one of the great inventors of our time. He has been quite outspoken with these concerns, and he has uh, founded his so-called Open AI Institute to talk about these things and has put a lot of his own money into creating forums. So there are things like this going on where people are airing these issues and, and talking about them, uh, and no one really knows how effective they will be. But to me, I think that they're quite appropriate, that we're at a time where it's still relatively early and these organizations are relatively immature, uh, but they're looking at the right questions, they're thinking about them, they're trying to take a, a global perspective, uh, but to be honest, the global perspective is very hard because every nation's got its own interests and its own agenda, and so if you look at these two, uh, Nick Bostrom's and, and Elon Musk, they're almost non-national. They are an individual building communities of, of like-minded people around the world and trying to do it outside of the political sphere. So uh, uh, back to your original question, are, you know, are nations and, and political institutions doing much here? I would say from my experience, not very much at all. But that is a challenge, David, yeah. because, you know, I am I'm aware about Nick's, you know, uh, involvement in this. And uh, uh, I have been, uh, you know, in part, when he started the existential crisis group, he invited me to be, you know, part of that. Uh, I am aware about all the, you know, progress they are making, but at the same time, the I still feel that the focus is not global because the are and like you said that you know nations are probably not interested in sharing their data uh, advances in artificial intelligence. They want to keep it confidential, but we have to understand that the they they may want to you know keep the development about AI confidential, but the impact is going to be global because it's going to impact all area, all industries. Like it will have an impact on the healthcare, education, economy, every uh, defense, warfare, everything. So there, there needs to be some sort of transparent transparency. I believe that would help nations prepare for what is coming their way because the progress is going to be so rapid and the impact is going to be so rapid. Yeah. So, I think that needs to be there, but uh, uh, let's see, you know, how we can uh, make a difference in that dialogue and raising their awareness about that. But uh, although I think we are in the early stages of achieving machine behavior and intelligence that is in line with humans, recent advances have enabled the virtual assistants to understand us and interact with us through spoken language. 
As AI technology improves, these virtual assistants are also demonstrating proactive capabilities required through the identification of patterns in human behavior. Now, this is going to have a very significant impact on we, the humans, who depend on this sector for the employment and living. Now, so when we look at the impact of just this sector, there will be mass layoffs as virtual assistants will take over. Yeah. What would happen to people who depend on these jobs? Yeah. Have you seen the movie Her? Uh, that came out a, a couple years ago with uh, Joaquin Phoenix, but that movie went into the future and created a world where the lead character actually preferred to spend time with his software agent because the software agent uh, through the mobile phone was actually more informed and more interesting and, and more entertaining and certainly more sympathetic and just easier to talk to than most of the people that he dealt with in, in the real world. So that his principal conversations and his dialogue with, with, with life was increasingly directed through his software agent. And that metaphor of people getting deeper and deeper lost into their own virtual worlds, you can now see starting to happen both through the agent technologies, but, but also the, the virtual reality technologies. And, and when you combine those two, the uh, escapism and the sort of uh, reliance that way can start to really supersede some human connection. So th there's a lot there that will change the way we are, the way we behave, the way we think. There are also tremendous, like with all these things, tremendous benefits that the idea of having a software agent that can read your emails and your phones and tell you what's important and, and sort of keep track of your schedules and, and, and itineraries and what you need to do and is just there as a, you know, com as someone to help you is very valuable. And so, you know, it's the same sort of two-edged sword. There's all this good stuff there and then there's all these strange things that might happen if it goes too far. And just about the whole AI field falls into that uh, dilemma that can you have the good without the bad? Yes. Uh, and, and, and we don't know yet, but uh, you know, that's sort of where we are. And, and certainly the agent field, as you say, is, is going to be one of the real testing grounds because we'll all have one and it'll be attuned to us. And so you're talking about billions of these out in the world uh, and just you know, a different reality to, than we've grown up with. That is very true, David. That's absolutely, you know, uh, mind-boggling. Nobody knows how this is going to play out. Now, we know that Moore's Law states every 18 months, processing power doubles while cost holds constant. Now, based on the advances, what major AI applications you see coming this year in 2016? Uh, this year, I would say the big focus is the ones that really seem to be really working are facial recognition, emotion analytics, and machine translation. That those three are now starting to get a critical mass of, of usage. Uh, you know, when you use Skype today, Skype can automatically translate what you're saying into just about any language. And it can do that for free in basically real time. And, and that's just extraordinary. Of course, the, the translators of the world are very happy about these things, but the rest of us think they're just terrific. And, and that's a very good example of 
how certain professions you know are really challenged by these technologies while many consumers will think well that's just great uh, and, and you have that trade-off uh, and you know translation has been a very I think instructive field because when Google and others are building these systems the last people they want on their project teams are professional translators yes. who actually cling to the wrong ways of doing this and they do it all through data they don't do it through traditional translation skills so that's another very good microcosm of the way not just the functions change but the skill set to do these things changes and all the skills that we've learned about experience and knowledge and things often actually get in the way something that's really driven by data and the logic of a, of a computer system so those three areas I think will get a lot of attention in 2016 and beyond right 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 now the biggest advantage of ai based machines our machines don't get tired mm -hmm. and with the material with, with which they are constructed today they could be so many times more stronger than humans thus making it possible for them to do things beyond humans physical strength and ability now for humans to have a substitute in this you know manner it is mind boggling and threatening now when you add this advantage of physical strength and ai they are on their way to become a substitute for of a human or we the humans for all labor jobs what do we gain and what do we lose by this development yeah. it, it's very hard to come up with hardly any job couldn't be done by a machine given enough time and training and software and all so you know the old that certain jobs could be automated and others couldn't really has fallen by the wayside and, and now people talk about the future of the professions doctors lawyers architects engineers accountants uh professors all traditional professions. now you can see scenarios where those things too uh and, and so it, it's all out in front of us but you know when i look at it we're probably talking about at least 10 years to, to hit them really hard, although the evidence might start happening well before then. But the big changes will take a while. There's a lot of pressure. There's a lot of technical challenges. There's a lot of legal and regulatory barriers to, you know, certain people have to be licensed to do certain things. So a lot of laws have to change. Uh, there are a lot of uh, resistance to this. So this again, the speed is hard, but the scenario are there and I think in an ideal future you know, one of the terms people talk about is not so much a robot but a, but a, what they call a cobot that there's a that you work and with the combination of human and a machine can be better than either alone and that would be a, a good future for everybody if that proves to be the case a lot of people want to try to work towards that view of technology uh, and can we get there because in the end, companies tend to do what makes most economic sense. Uh, so the cobot will be part of that answer. Mm, that's interesting. Now, AI looks, it seems that AI is expected to eliminate large number of jobs for we the humans. 
especially those that require a limited set of skills. And then in, as we progress, probably also for white collar jobs. Now, some futurists predict that more than 2 billion jobs will disappear by 2032 billion. As these new technologies will also create many new high, but I mean, some are saying that there are some areas where high skill jobs will also be lost. But at the same time, the high skill jobs will be, you know, created in areas where we need, you know, software architects and people working on artificial intelligence and robotics and all. So how are nations going to deal with that 2 billion jobs yeah, lost by 2030, that mass unemployment? I mean, look at because of the Syrian crisis, how Europe is impacted because of the mass migration. Think about a possibility that because of this artificial intelligence, that kind of mass migration starts happening. How are we going to deal with that? How yeah, nations deal with that? I think there's two ways of, of looking at this. That you know, the historical way says that you know, in 1875 in America, I think 90% of the people were farmers. Uh, and if you told people that someday 2% of Americans would be farmers, people would have said, well, what are the, what's everybody else going to do? And no one could have imagined what they were going to do, but of course things happened and, and they did other things and we've done other things. So one school of thought is that's what will happen here, that yes, computers will eat up a lot of jobs, but new jobs will be created and the fact that we can't say what they were that's actually normal. We can never say what they're going to be, but we have to trust they will happen. That that's one school. The second school says no; those jobs will go away, and there won't be any new jobs to replace them in anywhere near the same numbers. That just because it happened with farmers doesn't mean it can happen now, and that in fact we will not replace those jobs. And if you go down that path, then you people have to start questioning a lot of things about the overall economic system. And if you ask people who think about this, if, if the jobs really go away, you need a different social contract to deal with that. Uh, and the most common things that people talk about are various forms of guaranteed income. And that you start to disassociate work from income because work is, there isn't just work anymore. And so, Nobody knows which of those two paths is true. But and you can make a very good case for both. And if the second one proves true, I think the societal changes will be enormous. Yes, it's certainly a reasonable possibility that it could all happen. Oh, that that is interesting. Uh, that's a very interesting analysis you you know did there, uh, David now. Let's see how nations, you know, work towards that. Now, it is expected that in the not too distant future, non-biological intelligence will combine the intricacy and pattern recognition strength of human intelligence as similar, you know, to humans with the speed, memory, and knowledge sharing of machine intelligence. So this new generation of human-like transhuman machines uh, capable of performing mental and physical tasks as capably as humans, and perhaps better, are likely to cause a rise in wages for few extraordinary jobs at which humans can still outperform machines. However, it will also likely bring a net drop in ordinary wages for less skilled jobs as humans compete with robots for those jobs. As we have seen that Amazon has started, you know, using robots for, on their floors for the 
you know packaging and delivery and all that so how do society in general and nations deal with such challenges of mass unemployment and its repercussions of mass migration we just talked about you know one scenario of that but this is the transhuman is uh, you know transhumans and that movement yeah. and uh, going towards that it, it creates entirely different kind of complex challenges yeah. there, there's, there's another scenario that maybe it isn't in the future so much about man and humans versus machines but maybe humans and machines really start to merge to a significant degree that you know you know I, I talk a little bit about animal intelligence but if you think of how well a bird can see or many can navigate or the smelling of a dog those sort of capabilities can be engineered uh, and and they can be part of a machine but you know, maybe they also can become to the human in in some way so intelligence research will focus on machines animals and humans and as we start playing with people's genes and start trying to do things in new ways some of those capabilities may well start to blend into each other so there is a theory of sort of almost superhumans of the future who have access to machine-like capabilities as part of their brain as part of the what who they are and if that happens, you know, we're in such a different world that you know, how many of us can really even speculate? You know, you're just sort of guessing. But you know, if you look at what a simple thing of what performance-enhancing drugs can do in a sport, yes. you know, that's a very small thing. But imagine very mind-performance-enhancing electronics or future bioelectronics that is part of you. Uh, and that the machines and humans come together, you know, that is is not that hard to see happening. Right? And and that would change some of these questions about machines versus people because all of a sudden, you know, that's not something. Yes, yes. Now that, that you made a very interesting point that the human and machine uh, intelligence capabilities will merge, and we can see some aspects of that now because computers that easily understand what we say or perhaps watch our gestures and anticipate what we want, have long been a goal of artificial intelligence. And we can see that, you know, coming uh, through, through, uh, you know, systems like say uh, Siri, the AI powered personal assistant that is built into uh, iPhones and iPads and all. And it is a step towards that. So we are in an age where it has probably become necessary for all computer applications to offer spoken interaction as human voice blurs with AI voice, what implications do you see? Because the, it will be very hard to differentiate whether this is a human voice or it's an AI voice. That will almost certainly happen. And you're starting to see that already today in, in Hollywood, where you don't know whether that actor is the real actor or a digital enhancement or digital recreation or photo fancy photoshop version that the ability to distinguish between the real and the digital is really starting to change uh, and our avatars our digital images uh, will be versions of ourselves so that will happen in any just imagine the implications for law uh, and, and many other fields as you go down that path but yeah it's sort of our view that as you move into this totally digital world that you know almost everything has to be reimagined it's things are just going to be different and 
and so every field, in a sense, gets revitalized because everything needs to be thought afresh. Uh, you know, what does personal accountability mean in a world where you have digital images all over the place of, of yourselves? Uh, you know, and, and so, you know, that's to me an area that will create a lot of opportunities uh, and, and and jobs. Uh, but you know, there's just so many unknowns, and the question is whether hopefully things will not move so fast that we just simply don't have time to adjust. And I tend to be optimistic about this. I think they will. I think you know technology moves fast, but it doesn't move so fast. We can, you know, you know Amazon has been around now for 20 years, so we've got a pretty good feeling of how they work and what they're doing. And Google is now you know, almost 20 years old, so you know we. You know, these, we do have time to watch and learn, observe, and if necessary, regulate or, or change. So, I don't know, I, I tend to be optimistic about it, but, you know, we're heading into, you know, it's almost like sailing into the old new world. No one really knows where we're going. Yes, but uh, David, I think it seems that, you know, technology is moving way too fast, and I don't know how much time we have to prepare. Now, in the near term, the goal of keeping AI's impact on society beneficial it necessitates research in many areas, like from social impact or societal impact, economic impact, law, legal impact, security, and so many more. So while AI is on its way to control our cars, our airplanes, our pacemakers, our automated trading system, our power grid, our you know, our virtual assistants, you know, the way we function, our thermostats, our phones, everything. Uh, and the, an AI system does what humans want it to do exactly. So what challenges do you see in that expectation? Yeah, it's a, one of the ways of looking at that question is you know, what what do we really trust machines to do? And, and airplanes, I think, are, are a good example. You know, software can fly planes better than people by and large these days. But every airplane that takes off commercially has not just one, but has two. And that's very expensive. And has it, but why do they do that? Well, they do it because people simply will not explain people flying it. And it's still the case that in certain those pilots are required. So, you know. Machines flying planes is a 15-year-old, 20-year-old field. It's been, been quite advanced for a long time. But the pilots are as essential a, a, as ever. And so we, we see this uh, with drones today in the military, that you have that robotic warfare. People really And the answer is most people are really sort of creepy about that. Uh, and so there's still an awful lot of human oversight and the question is whether you can continue with that oversight and almost all the fields that you mentioned have that you know do you we trust a diagnosis a machine uh, versus a, a doctor or does the doctor still be in the loop you know, do will you still want a lawyer in the loop uh, so those questions if you look at the case of the pilot it says people give it all over to the machine. Uh, and so in those very high risk areas, there is there's some lingering human caution in there. 
that I think might hold true for the future. Yes. Uh, and we will see, but there, it's not, it's not a given that the that the people will just be taken out of those environments. And and you see this with really all of the the top professions. Uh, they they all still have their role and may hold on to it for quite a long time. Right, right. Now that is true, David. Now, yes, yes, that is true. Now, when we have ASI, a super intelligent machine, which you know everybody is very fearful of, it is unlikely to exhibit human emotions like love or hate. If the machine is programmed to do something, let's say, you know, very bad, very, you know, damaging, for example, autonomous weapons that are programmed to kill. Now, if these kind of machines fall in the hands of bad people, terrorists or, you know, rogue nations, these weapons could easily cause so much damage, so much mass casualties. Now, despite a socially ingrained fear of intelligent machines, there is no governing body at this point to oversee the continued development of AI systems or machines. And, and that is, you know, what I have been really worried about because even though, you know, we have some institutes doing research, studying, you know, the social impact, but these kind of governing bodies, which are so very essential to ensure that, you know, no such, you know, systems or the technology or machines are developed that could, you know, be a threat to uh, our, you know, existence. That is not there. The governing bodies are not there. What are the implications you see yeah. because of this uh, absence of that? So, and, you know, of the ones you mentioned, I think there is the most difficult that you can now see some really difficult scenarios of robotic autonomous vehicles, cyber warfare, various forms of uh, terrorism, of, and that that the machine intelligence greatly, greatly enhanced. And those are going to be very difficult to control. I mean, there are historical governing bodies, the Geneva Conventions and international courts, there are so-called rules of, of war that could evolve to manage things, but will they? Uh, and will they keep up? And, you know, or are they always a generation or two behind? So uh, to me, in the dangers that we're coming to, I, I think the warfare ones are the ones that, that I personally think are the most risky right now because the technologies cannot be controlled. Uh, you know, they can now make drones the size of a bumblebee yes. with a lethal force. You know, what what does that mean, and how does it control that? Uh, how the many traditional military rules need to be uh, really re-looked at. It. So, you know, some, I think, I had to guess that some, some areas we probably will not control them well and, and, and some we might. You know, the medical profession has a very good record of controlling things in, in many ways. There is a, a much worse history of, you know, people yeah. use them and then they control them later. Uh, and, and so uh, you'll probably get a mixed picture there, but I think that's the one could cause the most damage in the next five, six, seven years. Yes, yes. No, I, I hear you, David, on that. But these are really very, uh, you know, difficult uh, views that we have about the governance across nations or the global governance. And uh, it is just, 
unbelievable that you know there is no development on that front to you know create some sort of governing body where you know this uh, development and advances are happening so rapidly that there should be a governing body by now but it's not there but anyway with the increasing power of con computers it may become possible to build a machine that exceeds the intelligence of a human now if a machine could be built by humans that exceeds the problem solving and innovative and inventive skills of a human it could probably build another machine of even greater capability that possibility that humans could build computers that are smarter than them and then those computers could in turn build another much smarter computers until it reaches the limits of you know intelligence possible now these would lead to a possibility where machine intelligence will likely exceed the combined intelligence of every human being on earth now what will be its impact in terms of industries nations society and human survival yeah i, I actually think that that's actually quite likely because you're already seeing machines that can repair themselves that can program themselves that can design new features and solve problems for themselves and you, it's easy it's relatively easy to see computers that could design versions of themselves that would be better than what they are now based on the human designs uh, so machines that can design better machines and even instruct a 3D printer to make those machines, uh, that actually seems quite plausible. Uh, and the downside of that is that very few humans might be capable of understanding how it all actually works. And so one of the fields that is emerging uh, to try to deal with that is teaching the computers to explain their reasoning to humans. You know, why why has the computer adopted this fix or how did it make this decision? How did it decide to do whatever it chose to do? And to be able to explain that in a way that humans understand it. Uh, and that is an inversion of the way it's always been of humans trying to teach machines how to do things. In this case, the machines are teaching us what it's actually doing. And that is actually pretty likely. Uh, and, you know, you already see that in, uh, with IBM's Watson that reaches very complex conclusions in, say, a medical diagnosis uh, that it has to explain to a doctor. What do you think that, Watson? And Watson will spit out all the reasons and the probabilities and all the logic behind it because otherwise really could not have done that for his or herself so you know that machines passing human intelligence in in certain areas perhaps many areas seems quite likely yes yes that that is very likely and now uh, it seems that we hum we the humans will have to learn to think in a new way in order to survive as a species as non-biological or machine intelligence will continue to evolve exponentially whereas our human that is a biological intelligence is effectively limited and fixed in terms of you know physical boundary conditions unless we figure out unless we begin to explore further our connectivity with the infinite at this point our human intelligence is just limited we cannot there is no progressive you know growth in the intelligence so how do we the humans 
do that and what are the consequences of it if we cannot keep up with the you know rising machine intelligence yeah i think it's from a long-term point of view i mean that's sort of like the big science fiction question of yes what do we do when we create things that are better than us and you know, goes back. Probably not a fiction because we already see, David, the reality of the developments happening. So yeah. it is likely to happen, but not maybe you know, in the next five years, ten years, but you know, I'd say we will have to cross that threshold at some point, and, and people will have to try to manage that. And that all the governance issues, all the things you talked about, this is when they're going to come into play when. When we start to feel like the machines are in more control than we are, you know, when we start getting close to that, you know, that's the time to really start making hard decisions, and, and that's the world we need to start at least thinking about in general terms now, because you know nobody knows if that's in five years or or thirty-five years, but most people believe it's going to happen, uh, and sometimes things happen, and sometimes they don't. So. You know, all of these discussions, they sort of lay the groundwork for what we need to do. Uh, but my sense is that even better at dealing with these things when there's a specific problem that we want to try to solve with a general solution. Because there probably won't be a general solution. There'll be solutions in healthcare, and there'll be solutions in finance, and there'll be solutions in driving cars. Uh, you know, just like they're in, in the real world. All kinds of different dynamics that shape different worlds. Uh, so, you know, when I look at government, I'm less concerned big government bodies than effective government bodies in all these areas: medical profession, the legal profession, the military profession, the political professions. Can they govern in this digital age? And they're going to have to because things are going to change. You know, we know they're going to change. Exactly when we don't know, but you know, you're not going to bet against these changes. So, all everything that humans do, all every institution is going to have to try to rethink itself, and hopefully they can do that. Yes, yes, yes. No, that that is. Uh, let's see how it you know goes forward. But this is a very something very interesting. I read somewhere that there are there is a large group of people who believe that. Intelligent machines might help humans have greater freedom and greater incentive to concentrate on what is supposed to be a human life. That is to be able to spend time with our family and friends and you know children and uh, what matters to us, and spend time on our personal relationships and work on the inner self. And uh, they think that humans currently don't have time to be humans yeah. as we are forced to work in non-human capacity, machine-like capacity. I mean, look at the number of hours we are supposed to work every day, especially in America, if you see you know, how long hours we have. So the, the approach is that you know, machines will be able to free, a, free up our time so that we can focus our time and energy and resources on what really matters. So what are, what are your thoughts about this, you know, yeah. I, I'm very supportive of that line of thinking that, you know, for thousands of years, uh, technology has improved the human condition. You know, we live longer, we eat better, we're, you know, we're healthier, we're more educated. Uh, you know, we have our problems, but the technology has generally helped humanity. And the idea that suddenly that is going to stop 
uh, and that it's now going to be more negative than good, I think has yet to be proven. It's certainly possible, but it's entirely possible that, once again, technology will be a very significant benefit to people. Uh, and, you know, that is a matter of, of logic, but it's also just a matter of intuition or faith yes. or gut feel. And, and, of course, we don't know, but, you know, is it, you know, as I say, it's always been that way pretty much. Uh, and so hopefully it will continue. And if it doesn't, you know, then it's a whole different world. If people start taking the view that technology is working directly against us, that's tough. And, and I'll give you an example of how that can change, and we see it right now. You know, for all of us who grew up thinking that global trade was this really good thing, and there are many benefits of it, which is true, but people's views of global trade are changing. You know, yes. in America, people are not so keen on the trade with China and other places. Uh, you know, in Europe, there are many of these forces. So the global consensus that trade is generally always good is cracking. And it's not hard to see that the general consensus that technology has always been good, that could crack. Yes. Attitudes could change. And if the public starts to not believe that technology is good for them, their welfare, their jobs, their finances, their health, their free time, whatever. If society starts to see technology as the enemy, as it's starting to see trade, you know, then we're living then, then we've entered a different world. Uh, and that, you know, you can see an election four years or eight years, ten years from now, where this is the thing that people are voting on. You know, is yes. all this automation good you know is it really making us better off and so ultimately these things if you really want to get changed at some point they have to move into the political realm and where the votes are because that's where policies and the laws and the response will mostly come from and you may you know you're seeing that in the elections around the world now where they're much more of a nationalistic feel to them and yes. less global if you start to have elections that are more about stopping technology, you know, we've never had that. Uh, that is but it's quite possible. Yes, it is possible and you're absolutely right about that. That's why I said in the opening statement that, you know, we nations should not take the individual common citizen granted because this, the kind of impact that AI is going to bring, the technology is going to bring on the human society that you know people are not just going if it's that negative that uh, their survival or sustainability is at stake then they're not going to just sit back and let that happen so there is a you know we have to uh, balance the development with the you know uh, security of the society now long as longevity longevity medicine life extension and the augmentation of human performance is expected to become the very face of our global culture in the coming years, the questions like whether common citizens will have the right to enhance their memory, augment their intelligence, maximize their pleasure, or even change their physical forms on demand will come to the forefront and likely become a human rights issue. How would nations deal with it? Because this is absolutely going to happen in the coming years. That's one I think that I'm probably most optimistic on that, you know, many 
you know, if you go back to say feudal times, kings and queens, they had music and they had storytellers and they had entertainment. Nobody else did, but technology brought music and things to the masses. And, and I think that technology can bring the benefits of of itself to the masses in you know in healthcare and in education. Uh, so I actually, I mean, the, today's technologies are designed to go to everybody, you know, billions of people. You know, if you look at Google or Facebook, they want to reach everybody. So that reaching humanity, I think, is is probably maybe the best thing about all this is that it'll democratize services that today, I mean, you know, advanced medical care is extremely well off today. It might, you know, so hopefully that'll get better in, in the future. And I think there's a good chance that that's the case. Uh, so I'm pretty optimistic on that one. Uh, but you know, you just get back to what we were saying earlier, this whole issue of the politicians. And I think it is sort of the, the heart of it that they will respond to these issues when the vote starts shifting. And that is the dynamic that that we need to watch for. That you know, when people start electing candidates who care about this stuff, government will notice. Uh, and until they do, they tend not to. Uh, and we see this with you know, look at climate change or terrorism or you know, trade. All these issues. When they get into the voting box, that's when they when action gets taken. So. Uh, that is a stage where we haven't entered yet, but, but I expect we will enter fairly uh, soon. Right, right. Yeah. That, that, that's interesting. Let's see you know, how it goes forward. Now, just as we battle over the right for life today, right to life, I should rather say, right to life, it's almost a given that we will battle in the future over the right to personal enhancement. New and radical choices will be available to parents who want certain characteristics for their unborn children. For example, augmentation of intelligence or some corrective genetic procedure for you know the for medical reasons or you know intellectual reasons or you know appearance reasons. There could be anything. Who gets to decide who will have the access and who will not? Which and that's a great example. You know the sort of new ethical frontiers that, that get opened. And if you look at that question today, you'd say, well, different countries seem to have different ethics about this. Uh, and we may reach a situation where Europe, parts of America, China, India, whatever, the, the people take different views of what is acceptable and what isn't. And if that's the case, yeah, it's quite, a, uh, quite an experiment. Uh, but you know, getting a global ethical consensus on those issues will probably be extremely difficult. And some natural experimentation probably is a good idea just to see what happens. So I think in those ethical areas, we will probably go through quite a long period of trying things and watching things and different countries and different people testing different things, and hopefully that will lead to some consensus on what's a good idea and, and what is a very bad idea. Uh, because right now we simply don't know. In, in all of the those sort of genetic and, and biological issues, you know, so little factual information about, you know, some of these things could really help people. 
preventing diseases, preventing you know, things that might cause deformities or whatever. But you know, we so we've got a lot of learning to do. Uh, yes. But I mean, ethics in this world will be ethics have always been enormous to society, and they're just like every part of society. They're going to have to get expanded and, and reimagined and, and rethought. Uh, and hopefully, you know, people will be more, you know, people will be attuned to that. That you know, it, it's. I think every society recognizes that it needs some sort of ethical foundation of, of what it's doing. Uh, and this is now part of that picture. That is very true, David. Now, at the same time, we also are going to see similar, you know, uh, challenges with the enhancement capability, uh, because some people would say they want to, you know, have. Uh, the non-human enhancement, like they want their pets to, you know, have some kind of, you know, uh, enhancement, and uh, that could go on. And some, I mean, extremists or terrorists can also use this in a for their benefit in a different way. So, who would be, my my main concern is who who is going to decide and deal with such responsibilities? Because this is like nobody would have any idea of what kind of developments are happening it could happen in the garage it could happen in the basement it could happen in anybody's you know uh, home you know nobody would know what kind of uh, changes are happening across nations so how are governments or how would any governing body be able to keep a track of this kind of changes well it, it's a good question of can you control this stuff but you know if you look at today whether it's performance enhancing drugs or plastic surgery uh, or any other type of enhancements, you know, the medical profession has views of what it will and won't do. Uh, and various sporting bodies have views of what is and isn't legal. And then some people accept those and other people try to get around them. And so there's an underground world that basically ignores those rules. Uh, and that may well happen in these cases as well. I think that the the professional institutions can make reasonably good rules that most people will follow, but there's always people who won't. Uh, and you know, so in a sense, it's it's a familiar one, but the range of changes and the types of changes are getting more and more powerful uh, and more and more complicated. Uh, you know, but people are. You're wary of tinkering too much. I mean, you look at you know, China had its one-child policy for all those years, and now they're seeing the very, very heavy price that was paid for that in terms of the demographics of, of the country and the male and, and female relations. So, sort of playing around with these traditional biological rules you know, is risky, uh, and and people, you know, the the nations, the professions are seeing that. And the criminals are the criminals, and there's always going to be some of that. And it's almost, you know, when you go into all the areas we've been talking about, the possibilities of crime are just enormous. Yes. But in the end, society has never been driven by the criminals. You know, they, yeah, and so they're there, you know, worse at some times than at others. But you can't organize around them. You have to organize around, you know, the law-abiding Part of society and, and and go from there but yeah you know, I, I think i think ethics will be one of the great fields going, going forward <laughs> let's see let's see you know who is going to be able to take control of this because yeah so far goodness has you know prevailed and uh, 
uh, we have been able to control the bad elements but uh, i think with this kind of developments it looks very risky and very complex and challenging so let's see how it goes forward but with the you know technological progress we will also see the redefinition and the, of the meaning and nature of not only human species but humanity and human age and in spite of that right now we have i mean we don't see much uh, parallel development from different perspective that how can nations have an objective and meaningful dialogue about the challenges concern and critical risk when we don't have a proper framework institutions we talked about the governing body and you know need for institution but we don't have proper framework proper processes that are necessary to be there on which to even build a proper dialogue everybody is working in silos you know in bits and pieces everywhere across nations so how would we do that david and and i think it's clearly will be a need for that and the question is where will it come from will it come from traditional governments and academic sort of institutions or will it come out of the tech world itself in some way uh, and I, I think if you look at sort of internet rules most of them have come out of the tech world itself practices that emerge and so you know I I think a lot of people in Silicon Valley and elsewhere today, particularly the ones who've already had their great successes and are really looking for their legacies into the future, I think there's going to be a lot of interest in these issues. And I think there'll be people willing to put their time and, and money into this. I mean, you look at what Bill Gates is doing with his money today or what Mark Zuckerberg expects to do with his. You know, these guys have resources. And I think a lot of them will be interested in using some of them to sort of assure the future of the industry that made them who they are and, and made their great successes. So I think there will be quite a lot of talented people willing to engage in these issues uh, in a you know in a mix of some people being optimists and some people having a lot of deep concerns. But uh, I think it's. Yeah, I can see the future of particularly Silicon Valley being very interested in, in these things, uh, you know, because it's, you know, people, it's just so obvious that there's so much to do. Yes, very true. There's so much to do now. Uh, David, social settings and structures are changing uh, because of this technological development. And what is that one thing that you would like to change in how nations address machine intelligence and societal risk? The one thing that I would like to change, that's a good one to think about. I think, I need to think about this one. <laughs> one thing I would change, I don't know, can, can we cut this bit out and if I think of, a, of an answer? Yeah, that's a, yeah, that was on your list, throwing the blank on it. I would change. I guess, to, uh, let's just, yeah, let's cut all that out. I'd say the one thing that I would like to happen would be for less tensions between particularly America and Canada on the issues. Because I think that is a very rivalry that could spill over into many aspects of the issues we're talking about. Whereas if those, you know, two great nations can have a cooperative view of this issue, I think many of the types of 
conflicts that we've been talking about would be reduced and the risks would be much more manageable. But having these sorts of risks in an environment of intense geopolitical and economic and perhaps military rivalry makes them very hard to manage. And so that cooperation, I think, would be really good to see. Yes, yes, no, that, that is true, David. Now, David, uh, we are going to conclude our session here. We really appreciate you agreeing to come on Risk Roundup and share your thoughts and insights into, you know, machine intelligence and how on its impact on the human society. So I re we really appreciate that. And I'm sure our global viewers and listeners are going to benefit tremendously from what you had to say today. That would help them understand this very complex, you know, technological uh, advances and its impact that is going to happen on industries and society they it would help them understand it a little bit better so that they can probably hopefully you know start preparing towards you know facing the impact of this uh, technological tsunami that's coming their way so thank you david thank you so much for that and thank you for inviting me and uh, look forward to talking about these issues in the years ahead Wonderful, David. Now, we'll, uh, as we go forward and as we research more and uh, we have a need for understanding uh, you know, better, we would most certainly invite you again to come on Risk Roundup and uh, we, will, we look forward to uh, having you share your thoughts and insight that time, David. Thank you. Okay. Now, while the ability to create autonomous intelligent robots with perception, cognition and action able to coexist with humans can be viewed as the ultimate and most challenging goal of artificial intelligence, it is important to understand its societal impact on nations, in government, industries, organizations, academia, and individuals, in short, referred to as NGIOAI. Risk Group Cybersecurity Risk Research Center and Strategic Security Risk Research Center are created for this very purpose so that we can collectively identify, evaluate, and manage the risk facing NGIOA in CTS, that is cyberspace, geospace, and space. And we can invite you know, executives like David, who, can, who has years of experience and uh, analytical capability to help us understand this a little better so that we can collectively uh, discuss, debate, and define necessary framework, structure, processes, tools, and technologies to manage the security risk of not only the digital global age, but also of the coming technological superconvergence. We at Risk Group believe that risk management, security, and peace walk together hand in hand. Though security is related to management of threats and peace to the management of conflict, risk management is related to management of security vulnerabilities as well as management of conflict. And it is not possible to conceive any one of the three without the existence of the other two. All three concepts feed into each other. We believe that the security we build for ourselves is precarious and uncertain until it is secure for everyone across nations. Tradition becomes our security. So if we build a culture of managing risk effectively, it will lead us to security and security will lead us to peace. Let's manage the existing and emerging risks together. For more information on the Risk Roundups, to watch the Risk Roundup videos, or to hear the Risk Roundup podcast, please go to riskgroupbalancy.com. Do not forget to subscribe and share. Until next time, I'm Jayashree Pandya, host of Risk Roundup, signing off. See you next time. Thank you.